But I'd got to a point where I said to myself, I can't. I can't because when Musi re retired, I was the chairman of the DA. I could have become the interim leader of the DA, uh, but I had to have my lieutenant as the secretary general or chairperson of federal council being Helen Zilla. And I didn't believe she represented the future of the party. I controversially said that I thought there was a time to come and go for everybody in politics, and it was time for Helen Zilla to go and not come back. And then when she won, I said, well, I think maybe it's a time for me to go. Because I told you at the outset, I'm a conviction politician. I wasn't going to just stay there for a position. Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're going to talk with Atul Trollop. Atul has served as the federal chairperson of the DA from 2015 to 2019, the executive mayor of Nelson Mandela Bay from 2016 to 2018, and the parliamentary leader of the opposition. He is currently the provincial chairperson, or sorry, chairman of the Action SA in the Eastern Cape. Atul, good evening. It's great to have you on the show. So since you've retired from politics, um, I believe you mentioned it, this to me, you've been working with black citrus growers in the Eastern Cape. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure, Donald. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Uh, it's always a privilege to talk to uh, people who, who disseminate media. And I think it's important for people to understand, you know, who their representatives are and so on. So I, I really uh, enjoy and appreciate every opportunity. First of all, um, you know, you mentioned that I retired from politics in 2019, the end of 2019, I um, resigned all my positions that I had uh, in the Democratic Alliance. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I then, you know, found myself making this decision uh, over a period of about three or four days. It was a very tough decision to make because, you know, I'd been involved in full-time politics and public representation for 25 years. And I'd expected to do that for another at least 10 years, certainly for another five years. And um, I lost my conviction in my former political uh, home. Um, and I regard myself as a conviction politician rather than a career politician. So I made a decision over a couple of days. I discussed this with some of my close colleagues and obviously discussed it with my family. And one day I had a full-time occupation. The next day I didn't. And I had to do some introspection and I asked myself what do I have to offer and I realized that after 25 years in public office and politics and also in agriculture for many years before that I was on the executive of the Eastern Province Agricultural Union that I'd met a lot of people I have a particular passion for farming and I know how government works or doesn't work and I know the frustration that the private sector has with government so I started a consultancy business with the objective of bridging the divide between the public sector and the private sector. I didn't know how much my political contamination would affect that working with government, but I soon discovered that it didn't at all. Um, I remember a director general uh, of the Department of Agriculture saying to me when I told him what I was trying to achieve, he said, well, look, I can help you achieve what you want to achieve and you can help me achieve what I have to achieve. Um, as long as you don't have a political parochial political hat on because that complicates things so 
I realized that even though I was contaminated, I wasn't untouchable. And I was contracted by a company that exports fruit, first of all, to sort out some title deeds for five of their black citrus growers that produce citrus for export. Uh, they didn't have title deeds and they'd been farming for 30 years. And, you know, it's almost impossible to farm or run a business if you have no collateral of your own. So they had no collateral. So that was my first uh, mandate. And then another group of black farmers grow, joined the same company to export their fruit. And all of a sudden, it was it went from five growers to 13 uh, new growers. So it was a big organization. And this company asked me to run a support enterprise. So we provided technical support, administrative support. I, I worked many channels to get funding for these growers over the past two years, settle some of their debt, sort out their title deeds, uh, provide technical expertise, payroll, accounting services. So that's what I did. And um, I spent two unbelievably productive years working with commercial farmers that were exporting their fruit all over the world, but who had a lot of challenges. You know, They've had a lot of government support over the years, but sometimes it came too late or in the wrong part of the season. Uh, the applications were not applicable. And they really were in the, the one group of farmers joined us because they'd had enough. They'd built up a debt load uh, of 90 million rand, and they were supposed to be out of debt after that strategic um, engagement. And uh, so I've been doing that for two years. So I was able to, you know, uh, practice my passion of agriculture and also to help people to become commercially independent. Uh, and it was very fruitful two years. Um, and, I, and I also came to really understand what rural poverty is all about, because those are black farmers operating in the former Siskai area. And the rural poverty there is just unimaginable. There are no opportunities. So we provided job opportunities to about a thousand people, both seasonal and, um, you know, uh, full time labor. And. I realized that without those farmers actually producing citrus in that area, there'd be no economic opportunity. So that's why we have this extraordinary um, sort of record migration of people to the cities, urbanization, escalated urbanization. And the tragic part about that is they leave where they come from, beautiful rural areas that have enormous potential. And they come to the cities to try and seek their fortunes. And there's less opportunity in the city. And they end up living in the most terrible informal settlements, their families are dislocated, the, the community is dislocated because of that. And when Herman Mashaba called me and said, listen, Ethel, we're running out of time in this country. Will you come and help me? I, I, I got to the stage of my life that I was enjoying not being in politics, but he pushed something in me, like a trigger point. And I had been asking myself a gnawing gut feeling, had I done enough? Have I done enough? And he convinced me to say, okay, I'm going to give it one last chance because I really love this country, but I love my province. And I love the rural hinterland, especially. And I have a passion for agriculture. That's agricultural transformation and, and rural um, land reform has not worked in South Africa. So I, I really want to focus on that. And my objective is to work in the Eastern Cape, which is a depressed area. And the ANC government has the highest majority still in the country in the Eastern Cape, despite our record poverty and everything else. So Herman said, I'm calling you up for national service. Come and help me fix this. Oh, great. That sounds interesting. So, yeah, Atul, we're definitely going to get to Action Essay in a bit, but let's focus on the controversial questions at the start. So, in a recent interview on Nisport, you said that Musi Maimane was, if, if I'm um, quoting you correctly, he was judged too harshly 
for the 2019 election results. And that numerous other factors played into that result, like Patricia DeLille's situation in Cape Town, Ellen Zilla's colonialism tweets, that also played a role. But a lot of people say that Musi Maimane's weak and indecisive leadership made those issues, issues a much bigger problem than they really were. I mean, Ellen Zilla, for example, has said that internal polling showed that most South Africans agreed with her colonialism tweets, including Black people. So isn't Musi Maimane somewhat responsible for these issues becoming much more of a problem than they really were? Okay, first of all, let me just say, I don't know what internal polling she's referring to, Helen Zilla, about her colonialist tweets, but I'm bet, willing to bet my bottom dollar that that's not true. They caused a lot of offense. They caused a lot of heartache. They reignited a lot of pain. And uh, that's my opinion. Okay, so I'd love to see the polling. I, I don't believe it. Uh, you know, there, there, there was been a lot of speculation about Musi Maimane and why he left and, you know, whether he was an experiment or not. And let me just tell you at the outset, I'm not here to slag the DA off. I had a, a long association with the DA and its predecessor parties over 30 years, 25 years as an elected public representative. I held many positions of office in that party. Uh, I was also divorced once. Uh, my, my wife and I were married for 27 years. We had two amazing kids. We, we had a clean divorce. There was no acrimony because if you have a relationship of respect for that length of time and you have children and you start with acrimony, it affects everybody. So I don't want to go there, but I now belong to another political party and we are contesting for ideas and we're contesting for votes. So let me just answer your first question. Musi Maimane, uh, I came to know about him when I was the leader of the opposition in parliament. And uh, my chief whip at the time, Ian Davidson, said, listen, I've met a guy in Johannesburg, told Helen Zilla and I that I've met a guy in Johannesburg who I think represent, could represent the future of our party. And there was, the DA was going through a process there of trying to become a party for all South Africans. And uh, we interviewed Musi Maimani then to be a mayoral candidate for the DA in Johannesburg. And he did really well in that election. We then... Um, asked him to stand as the premier candidate in Gauteng uh, a couple of years later. And again, he did really well there. And uh, then in 2015, Helen Zilla said, no, this guy's ready for the leadership of the party. I'm going to step down. And she nominated him. He was her proxy. And all the people that said to Musi Maimani, he must take the rap for the poor election result that we had in 2019 were the very people that were campaigning for his election. Helen Zilla, all the other current leadership, John Stenos, and you name them, they were all gung-ho for um, Musi Maimane. And he became the leader of the party and he became the leader in parliament. And 2016, we had an extraordinary election where we had set ourselves a goal of winning Cape Town, winning Nelson Mandela Bay, Johannesburg, and Chwane. Cape Town, they won. Joburg, uh, we didn't win, but we were headed a coalition. Chwane, we didn't win, but we were head of a coalition. And in Nelson Mandela Bay, we didn't win, but I was the mayor, I was the head of a coalition. So we had four mayors. Job achieved, well done, everyone madly excited about it. Not long after that, 2019, there was an election. There were a whole lot of issues. There were issues about some of the failed, uh, you know, uh, experiments. And there were a number. Lindiwe Mazibuko pushed by Helen Zilla and eventually left when she fell out of Helen Zilla. Patricia DeLille pushed by Helen Zilla to become the mayor of Cape Town. She eventually left because she had a fallout. Musi Maimane, exactly the same thing. 
Schweizer Reinecke, the issue about the school teacher with segregated classrooms. That was a huge issue. It had a massive impact on the former, let's say, Afrikaans-speaking voters that were voting for the DA. There were many things that culminated in the DA going backwards by about 1.3%. Cyril Ramaphosa, after the Ramaphoria days, when people were still excited about his presidency, he and the ANC went backwards by 5.5%. The ANC didn't kick him out. They said, we had a bad election, we're going to fix this thing. The DA turned on Musi Maimani. And I came under pressure because I said at the IEC election result, I said, we must take collective responsibility. We must go and introspect. We must find out why the voters have turned against us because we were the only party that had grown in every election from 1994 to 2019. That's a long, long time to grow. Yes, we came from a very low base, but we grew in every election. So the one election when we went backwards, we turned on a young black leader that the party had identified to represent the future. Now, you show me a young man at that age who hasn't made mistakes. Musi made mistakes. I spoke to the review panel of the DA that did, you know, the review of how we performed. I was very frank about what my reservations were, but they wanted him to take full responsibility. I then stood for an election. I was the chairman of the party. I stood for an elected position called the chairman of the federal executive, which is pretty much like the secretary general post uh, in other political parties. Helen Zilla won that election. Now, I've lost to Helen Zilla before. I lost in 2007 the leadership of the party. I lost to her, her proxy, um, uh, Lindiwe Mazibuko. Uh, I beat Ryan Kutsio, who was Helen's proxy. So we won and lost contestations against each other, and we carried on working together. But I'd got to a point where I said to myself, I can't. I can't, because when Musi re retired, I was the chairman of the DA. I could have become the interim leader of the DA, uh, but I had to have my lieutenant as the secretary general or chairperson of federal council being Helen Zilla. And I didn't believe she represented the future of the party. I controversially said that I thought there was a time to come and go for everybody in politics, that it was time for Helen Zilla to go and not come back. And then when she won, I said, well, I think maybe it's a time for me to go because I told you at the outset, I'm a conviction politician. I wasn't going to just stay there for a position. So that's where our paths actually parted, Helen Zilla and I and the DA. I just thought they're going in a direction that doesn't satisfy me because I know that you need critical mass in politics to bring about change. And the DA has started to lose support that I'd spent my lifetime in the Eastern Cape growing, especially in black communities. We didn't have any representatives or votes in the DA in the black communities of this province in the Eastern Cape. I was a leader here for 16 years. I grew that, obviously with a lot of support of people that I worked hard with. And systematically, we've lost a lot of that support. And you know, political parties like to spin election results. I'm willing to take you another wager that in the 2014 election, the DA will go backwards again. I mean, 2024, they'll go backwards again. Uh, and uh, that's not gonna help bringing about change in South Africa. So I, I was controversially accused of saying that we should take collective responsibility. And the DA says, no, we're a liberal organization. We're not gonna take collective uh, responsibility. That's a socialist kind of concept. We're a party of individuals and the individual Musi Maimane must take the rap. Isn't it ironic that a short while thereafter in the 2021 local government elections, the DA lost 368, I think, councillors. They've got 368 less councillors 
Not Helen Zilla nor John Steenhuisen took any responsibility for that. Yet they demanded that of Musi Maimane two short years prior to that. So I firmly believe that you must take responsibility. And if Musi was guilty, then I was guilty as the chairman of the party and I was prepared to take that responsibility and part ways. Interesting. <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, I, I don't want to cause acrimony between you and your former party, but I mean, Atul, you, you brought up Swaizer and I have to ask you, do, do you believe Musi Mamani reacted too quickly to that event? And he spoke out against a teacher when it, later it seems like the teacher was actually trying to help the situation. Let me give you the insight to Schweizerenica because I had to deal with it personally, a lot of the fallout. I had to deal with it. I even spoke to the teacher. I spoke to AfriForum. Uh, I was involved in a lot of the behind-scenes negotiations. Political parties are big organizations, and big political organizations operate like a corporation. And there was this incident of a photograph of a segregated classroom, okay? And somebody in the leadership of the DA, in the administrative media leadership, not exactly sure because no one ever owned up and said it was me who gave the instruction. Somebody gave the instruction to the youth leader of the Democratic Alliance to go there and to make a statement. And he went there and he made a statement and he said, this picture of segregation in this classroom brought back painful memories to me. And he called for an investigation. But that wasn't, that's what he called for, an investigation. Everyone jumped the gun and said that he has prejudged the teacher. I spoke to her personally. I have a number on my phone. He never said that teacher is racist. He said that this segregation in this picture has triggered raw emotions in me. And everybody held him to account. Okay. I protected him. I said he never accused anybody of racism. He just said that this picture needs an investigation. He wasn't the only one who called for investigation, but it obviously then unraveled. It became a political flashpoint and it went haywire. And nobody to this day knows who got uh, the DA youth leader to go there and make that statement. But it became a huge wedge issue that was driven and the DA suffered because of it. So, yeah, there might have been an element of prejudging. I don't think Muslim, I know Musi Maimani didn't send uh, the DA youth leader there. I know somebody in the media office sent him to say, we must go and respond to this. This is an issue. It's clear segregation and it must be racist. He never said that. He said it must be investigated. And he met with the MEC of education. He met with the school governing body and he even met with the teacher there. But then it became a mobilization point. And, you know, in politics, once you start explaining, you're losing. And we were explaining a lot on the back foot and we were losing. But I do want to tell you that I had frank face-to-face -face negotiations with Afri Forum that was representing the teacher. And I believe that we were resolving it and coming to the bare truth of what happened there. But unfortunately, it became a snowball that nobody could stop. Um, so Atul, you mentioned uh, during Ellen Zilla's colonialism tweet, were you the chairperson of the Democratic Alliance? Yes, I was. So you mentioned that there was no internal polling that showed support for her tweet. I mean, if you were the chairperson of Democratic Alliance, you would have seen it. So by inference, she must be lying. Look, I, I don't believe it. I don't believe there was any internal poll that supported it. I, and I certainly believe that if, if there's an, a, an any other poll would show that that are two polls apart. 
if there was an independent external poll would prove that if there was an internal poll that said that there was majority support for it, that those two would be poles apart. Because I know for a fact that the issue around colonialism triggers very raw wounds for the majority of the people in this country. And President Mandela made it a point in his presidency and even prior to becoming the president of this country to try and bring unity through diversity and the concept of a rainbow nation and just get on with it. Uh, when you start promoting, you know, uh, colonialism, you, you might as just as well be defending apartheid. Uh, it, it's, it becomes conflated. And whether they're two completely different things, it becomes conflated. And I'm afraid, I must say again, when you're explaining in politics, you're losing support. There was too much explaining around that and, you know, insisting that she was right. I mean, I recently read that she, she, she apologized to Musi about it because she was forced to apologize. But when you read and listen to the apology, she said she apologized because she, apologized she realized she had caused offense. Now, was it a genuine apology or was it an apology to placate the leader of the time? That raises even more questions. I only read about that recently. I've been out of the DA for two years now, but there was a, a difference of opinion or, or difference in facts. Because if you apologize out of, you, you mean it and conviction, you say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I misread the room and the nation and the country. But don't come two years later or two and a half years later and say, well, I only apologize because I, Musi made me apologize. That's just not good enough. And so Helen Ziller's willingness or her faction's willingness to defend colonialism, does that represent the direction you don't want the DA to go into? I, I didn't want the DA to go in that direction. I believe that it was a political cul-de-sac and that it would alienate people that we'd spent a long, long time, including herself, to attract to the DA as a party for all South Africans. I really think that that's what I thought at the time, and I still think so right now. And do you think um, a willingness to pursue that direction is why there's so many disgruntled and bitter former DA members and leaders? Why are there so many disgruntled and bitter former DA members? Well, look, I can't speak for, you know, individuals that have left the DA. Some, some have left the DA for, you know, well, everyone leaves for their own reason. But, you know, I've heard Bongani Boloi, who recently joined Action SA, I heard his reasons. I had long discussions with Musi about his reasons. I know Herman Mashaba's reasons. And there were other people, you know, Lindiwe Mazabuka was a bright, shining star in our party. She left after about two and a half years of leadership in parliament. Uh, she would have her own reasons. Um, you know, I remember Helen Zilla saying that the hubris of Lindiwe Mazibuko was just too much. She couldn't handle it. Well, you know, why is it always other people's hubris that makes them wrong? And uh, yeah, you know, I, I think enough said about that. But there have been people who've left the DA. But, you know, the reality is people leave political parties all the time. People leave, they come and go. Even the DA, here's the issue. Uh, I never thought I'd be in another political home ever again in my life. I mean, I'd spent too long in the DA and, and now I'm in another political party. That's the essence of democracy. But here's the thing. When I belonged to the DA, it was a 1.3% party. How did we become a 20 plus percent party? We assimilated people from all other political parties, the new national party, the um, federal alliance, some people from the ANC, some people from you know, the ID and various other political parties. We assimilated them. We even assimilated political parties and we even assimilated leaders of political parties. Patricia Delo, she came with her party and herself and many others. So 
you know, I've said what's good for the goose must be good for the gander. So Action SA is now recruiting people across the board from all political parties and from the DA. Ironically, that's how the DA grew. And ironically, that's how the Action SA has grown. Yeah, so Democracy in action. So, so let's move towards your new party, Action SA. What can one say is the difference ideologically between Action SA and the Democratic Alliance? Can one say that Action SA is more of a conservative party, uh, especially if you take Omar Mashaba's stance on immigration? Look, if you put the two parties' constitutions together and even their policy suites together, they're not too different. Uh, they really aren't too different. But there are a couple of essential differences, I believe. Now, I was in the DA, and one of our main growth inhibitors was that we had this label of being a racist party or being a white party. And, you know, I was a leader in the DA, and I was white, and I was accused of all sorts of racism and human rights abuses and Helen Zilla and Tony Leon, and you can go through all of them. So we were forever trying to say, well, we, you know, we might be white, but we're not racist. I didn't believe that the DA was racist. And when I did perceive any racism in the DA, I think we dealt with it reasonably well. Herman Mashaba uh, essentially is new and fresh. He doesn't have too much political contamination or the the stench of established uh, career in politics. He's essentially a businessman. And I think what's fresh about him is he brings an element of pragmatism that I think is the most important ism in modern politics, not communism, not socialism, not liberalism. Uh, it's pragmatism. And Herman Mashaba says, we've got a problem in this country. The ANC has broken the country. I can't go into coalition with the ANC and to fix the country with the people who broke the country. So he's very simplistic ideas about that. Uh, I said recently when somebody said what finally you know, made me made up my mind about going to Mashaba's Action SA, I had long discussions with him about his position on the EFF, his position on immigration. But while we were having backwards and forwards negotiations and emails and asking him to respond to certain things, because I wanted his position on paper so that there could be no ambiguity about where he stood if we have difficulties or differences going into the future. And he was very frank and I was very frank. But one of my former colleagues said to me, he said, oh, I can't believe it. I hear you're going to join the green xenophobe. And I didn't respond to it for three days because I thought this is precisely why I'm happy to be out of politics because South African politics has become so puerile. Everyone's good at calling each other names and labeling people. If you're green, you must be a xenophobe. If you're blue, you must be racist. If you're red, you must be, I don't know, some rabid communist. And if you're green and gold, you must be completely corrupt. And that's what they do. That's point fingers and call each other names all the time. And I actually thought, okay, I'm done with this now. Because the one thing about social media is you can't hide anything. So after I joined Action SA on the 9th of February, I was the following week, I went to a Senate meeting. And in the Senate meeting, somebody sent me a picture. Uh, from my Twitter timeline in 2019. And I was representing the DA and I'd been sent in a campaign in Limpopo to go along the whole Zimbabwean border and to assess for ourselves as a party what was going on on the borders and why there was this unbelievably uncontrolled infiltration of people coming into South Africa undocumented. 
And I remember one of my colleagues who subsequently became the deputy chief whip in the DA. He made it a, he, he developed an identity for himself in the party by going to, Mo, uh, to Botswana and Namibian borders. And he took pictures of people just walking across the border. He walked across the border and he, he made a name for himself for doing that. So the DA was driving an anti-immigration or anti-undocumented, um, unlawful immigration in 2019. I've looked at Action SA's policy on immigration. It's not anti-immigration because I said to him pertinently, I said, I have a daughter who has a scarce skills visa who works in Amsterdam. We live in a global village. You study, you become um, competent to be able to work anywhere in the world. And I said to Herman, what's your position on that? He said, Athol, South Africa was built on the back of migrants. I know that we have built this country on immigration and we can still continue to build and fix this country on immigration, on scarce skills, but people need to be documented. They need to come into this country legally. We need to know who they are. We need to know where they're working. And if they're earning money, they need to pay tax. And if they're using the state services and infrastructure, such as healthcare and education, they must pay tax. And that's no different to any other country in the world. So all of a sudden, he's now a xenophobe. But what I find extremely interesting is that the ANC are now talking the same language because they're realizing that uncontrolled immigration is a problem. Julius Malema, who famously said people must find ways to come in South Africa, all of a sudden, he too is now saying, hey, this uncontrolled undocumented immigration is a problem. So all over the world, whether it's Donald Trump wanting to build a wall, which I thought was completely mad and insane, or trying to get into Europe, or trying to get into Ireland or the United Kingdom, you need documentation, you need a passport, otherwise you can't go in. Simple. Yeah, I mean, it makes absolute sense. Um, but uh, Atul, you, you mentioned, okay, you, you say that Omar Mashaba is one of the prime reasons why you wanted to join Action Essay. But what happens if he's no longer the leader? So that's why I focus on ideology. So because obviously yeah. he's not going to stay there forever. So what happens if he's gone? Yeah, so that's very interesting because um, I've said before, and it's on the record, that's the beauty about social media and everything else is what you say today, you must be able to man up to in a couple of years time. I said that what's happened in South Africa is that for a long time, there's been a distrust of politics and political parties and the establishment, but now there's a new development. It's dislike. So people distrust politicians. Now they dislike them. They just are done with politics. And that's why 53% of the registered electorate didn't vote in this election. So I'm very wary of people's egos being bigger than voters' issues. But unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, political parties have leaders and they need to be charismatic to draw attention and to attract support. They have to be charismatic. Mashaba is charismatic. Mashaba is uh, pragmatic. Uh, he's a businessman. Uh, he's a professed capitalist. I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I think it's the only way we can grow our economy. So there are lots of things that attract me to him. But I know that Action SA will have to become more than just Herman Mashaba. So when I was meeting with him, I said to Herman, I'm a proponent of a flat leadership structure. I don't like hierarchical titular kind of structures where the leader and the president is the only person to speak or is the commander in chief. Now to me, that's just, I would never belong to a party where there's a titular head who's in complete control. So whether it was Tony Leon or Helen Ziller in the, my days in the DA, I always used to challenge him. If I had something on my heart or on my mind, I would challenge him. 
same applies to Herman Masaba. And he said to me, Ethel, you're welcome to come. People said, well, how are you two bulls going to live in the same crawl? We said, we'll, uh, you know, uh, help each other. If there's a difference, we'll try and convince each other. So I think that's fine. That's the essence of the, 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 the art of diplomacy and the art of politics is to convince somebody else without fighting. I think I can work with Herman. We were mayors at the same time. We used to have similar meetings with our former party. We had the similar objectives. And uh, I sincerely hope we'll be able to build another layer of leadership in Action SA. And that's why one of the reasons why I'm there too. He asked me to help him to extend his reach into the Eastern Cape, that I believe that we are building another layer of leadership in the DA, in, in Action SA. So it isn't just Herman Mashaba. And he himself says he'd be delighted He'd be the first person to say, I'm happy to hand this party over to the next person because he says essentially he's a businessman. That's his first real passion. Uh, when I was announced just joining the party, he said he never used to take sleeping tablets. He loved business. And now that he's a politician, he has to take sleeping tablets. But he says he realizes that he's got to do something and he doesn't just want to be a, an observer. So I like a lot about Herman and uh, we are building leadership. So the people that are coming into the DA that are taking up uh, provincial chairperson's position, from Feiki Mentor to Bongani Boloi to Josi Kwena Mangope, who is the son of Lucas Mangope in the former Bukutatswana, those are, are, are really impressive people. It's, a, it's the second tier of leadership, and I'm happy to be part of it. So, Atul, you mentioned that the DA was damaged with claims of racism, that that was seen as a racist party. What advice would you give as a former member of the DA to Action SA to prevent it from following the same route, that it's um, to prevent it from being branded the white party or the racist party or the party of apartheid? Well, I think the one distinct advantage that Action SA has over the DA is that it's not perceived to be a white party. That's the first thing. Uh, unfortunately for the DA, it was perceived to be an apartheid relic. It was a white party, even though it transformed itself and had done incredible things to, to be a party for all South Africans. We would never have been able to win Nelson Mandela Bay or be the biggest party in Nelson Mandela Bay if we didn't attract support across all communities. So they did do that. And if you live in South Africa, you're going to have challenges with racialism. People have sensitivities. And the one thing about racism, is that you can't hide it. In fact, when you think you're camouflaging it and hiding it, that's when it's most painfully felt by the people that feel it because it's a perceived feeling. So you can't hide it. So there will always be challenges. Uh, I think the, 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 the advantage that Action SA has is that it's not regarded as a white party. It's a new party with a black leader and primar primarily black leadership and primarily black support. But interestingly, it was able to attract support in the six municipalities or seven municipalities that they contested in the last election. They were able to get votes, significant amounts of votes in Santon and Soweto and Alexandria and Perry urban areas of people of all persuasions. And since I've joined, I've had an overwhelming uh, response from people of all racial persuasions to say that they want to work with Action SA. So I think they, they are at an advantage in that regard. So you think that um, the fact that the new national party melded with the DA, that really did some serious damage to the DA? I don't think so. I had my own personal reservations about it at the time. And history will show that people like Dean Smuts and I were opposed to forming the, the Democratic Alliance at the time that we did. 
we believed that one more election and then we could actually wipe out the new national party. But once a decision had been made, I was a loyal member of the DA. I then promoted the DA to be a party for all South Africans. And we actually grew. We showed much higher growth than we'd ever had prior to the formation of the DA. So if anyone tells you that the new national party joining the DP to form the DA was the death knell or the beginning of the end of the DA, not true. We had unprecedented growth after that. Well, I'm talking specifically about that reputation of being a party of apartheid. Didn't that melding with the new national party help with that image? I'm I'm speaking precisely about that. Despite that, we showed growth across all communities. So I don't believe it did. Uh, I think there was already the stigma there because both the DP and the NNP had come out of the previous dispensation as participants in a phony or uh, a, a faux democracy. So, so that label came from long before the formation of the Democratic Alliance. It was there already. There was, there was a real and perceived feeling that we were part of the past and didn't represent the future. And whether it was fair or not was a fact that we had to deal with in South Africa. And I think at the time, the DA dealt with it quite well. I mean, the fact that Mashaba and Maimani and people like that were in our party was proof that black people were prepared to come to the DA. And, and to represent it, not only vote for it, but to represent it. I remember one of the most amazing achievements in my time was to attract two people from the ANC. One was the former premier of the Eastern Cape, Nosimo Balinghela, and a guy who subsequently replaced me as the provincial leader in the Eastern Cape, Ngaba Panga. He was an ANC Youth League me- member. He was the president of the SRC. Those people wouldn't have come to the DA if they believed it was racist, but there were many people who punted the propaganda that the DA was racist. But that brings me to the next point. You haven't asked me the question, but I'm going to make the point. I think that one of the biggest challenges for established political parties in South Africa is the concept of enclave politics. So you're an enclave for white. You're an enclave for black. You're an enclave for Afrikaans people. You're an enclave for colored voters. You're an enclave for Indian voters. You're an enclave for Zulu voters. And enclave politics has actually pushed people apart in this country. And we are actually more divided than ever before. So I'm really excited when people start talking about unity, getting the job done, not tolerating corruption, talking about ethical leadership, holding people to account. That's what really interests me. And that's the kind of language I'm getting in Action SA that excites me. So you mentioned that Herman Mashaba has clarified his position on the EFF and immigration to you in an email. Can you tell us about his position on the EFF? Because a lot of people are somewhat uncomfortable with his relationship with Julius Malema and the EFF. I believe Julius Malema once referred to getting rid of you and Nelson Mandela Bay as slitting the throat of whiteness. So I believe you would also have not that great of a relationship with Julius Malema. Yeah, no, let me talk about me first, about my relationship with the EFF. I don't trust them. Uh, I remember Julius Malema and I was part of the leadership when we were negotiating with the EFF to come into coalition. They refused to come into a coalition government. The DA was negotiating with them then. So the, the DA is squealing about the EFF now, to me, is just nonsense. We, we, we tried. We tried our best. Malema refused. He went into a cooperation agreement, which is mistake number one. Never go into a cooperation agreement with a political party that's your competitor. Because they'll cooperate today and they won't cooperate tomorrow. And then sorry, transaction- 
sorry, are you talking about South Africa in general or are you talking about Nelson Mandela Bay? About what in general? The, the, the agreement that you're not talking not, not no, no, talking. National. Okay, okay, national okay. agreement. National agreement. Uh, and the EFF said, we will not go into coalition, okay? But we will cooperate with the DA. And Julius Malema said, the DA is a better devil than the ANC. So then that was the first thing I realized that he had this attitude that my enemy's enemy will be my friend for the time being, that we were useless or useful idiots. And we went into that agreement and it was a cooperation agreement. And it wasn't long that they turned on me because the DA would not support the EFF on expropriation without compensation in parliament. Then Julius Malema said, we'll teach you a lesson. We're going to cut the throat of whiteness. We're going to get rid of Trollope. And when we've got rid of Trollope, we're going to go after Mashaba and we're going to go after Solim Simant. That's what he said. It's on the record. So Herman Mashaba made a point the other day to me, he reminded me, he said, I was the mayoral candidate for Joburg. I was never part of the negotiations with the EFF. I was given a negotiated contract with the EFF by the DA. Bear that in mind. He didn't negotiate it. The DA leadership didn't negotiate it that agreement. I didn't have to have a, even a cooperation agreement with the EFF in, in Nelson Mandela Bay because we had an outright coalition majority. Herman and Solly had to cooperate with them. They had to cooperate with them because they were minority governments, okay? So the EFF's position was they were going to show the DA that even when we aren't actually in a cooperation agreement with you, we're going to hurt you, we're going to get rid of Trollope. And that is the problem with the EFF. That's why I don't trust them. They are the ultimate transactional politicians. They fair weather friends. They'll be there today. And when you need them tomorrow, they're gone. Because Julius Malema is only interested in one thing. He's not even interested in the EFF. He's interested in a reverse takeover of the ANC because he wants to become president. So I said to Herman, I said, Herman, we need to be clear about the EFF. Is it the EFF that you like? Or is it about putting a coalition together to govern, to fix the mess of the ANC? And he made it quite clear to me. He said, that's what it's about. It's about governing to fix the mess of the ANC. You'll remember Julius Malema in December last year. He might not remember, but go and check in the archives. He said that Herman Mashaba was a naive and ignorant politician and that the EFF would show him about politics. So all this nonsense that Herman Mashaba is in love with the EFF, it's not. He made it quite clear at the press conference where I was announced as the new chairman. He said, we're going to contest against every single party we want the votes from other political parties. That is the art of politics, is to convince people from the EFF, the ANC, the Freedom Front Plus, the IFB, COPE, ACDP, everyone, to come to Action SA. And that's what we're going to do. We, 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 we're not in any um, formal arrangement, uh, non-aggression pact or anything with the EFF. The EFF is fair game for Action SA. So if the ANC were to fall below 50%, what advice would you give um, Herman Mashaba if, the, if you had to form a coalition with the EFF? How would you handle such a situation? Well, look, if you look at the coalition governments, some coalition governments, use Israel, for example. Have a look at what's there. You've got people from the far left to the far right and ultra-conservatives in the middle. So if you have a situation which voters bring about, incidentally. And I think voters need to start thinking about if they really want change, they must think strategically when they vote because voting for a whole plethora of new parties and independent parties and individuals that end up 
you know, negotiating for themselves into positions and forgetting what they promised the electorate, that's not going to make things easy. So at the moment, I think we've got probably more political parties in this country than anywhere else in the world. And I think that we should be moving towards having a threshold that if you don't get 5%, for example, in an election, you can't participate in it. They have that in Germany. And even then, in Germany, they still have to put coalition governments together. And Angela Merkel governed coalition governments really well for a long time. And they were they didn't all agree. They certainly didn't agree all the time. But she was a master at keeping those coalitions together. So I would, I would advise Herman the following. First of all, pick your partners very carefully. Don't throw everyone who's against the ANC into the same bucket because they will give you a headache and the coalition won't last. But more importantly, make sure you draw up a coalition agreement that's signed in blood by the participants. Because I saw in Nelson Mandela Bay, the EFF could not have cut my throat if they didn't have the support of the UDM. And the UDM was our coalition partner. And they voted with uh, Bantu Holomisa's UDM and made Mongameli Bobani the, the mayor. So without him, they couldn't have got it right. They tried six times. Only when one of the DA members voted with them and our coalition partner, the UDM, voted with them against our coalition agreement, they should have been kicked out for every infraction of our coalition agreement. They broke everyone. They weren't kicked out. They eventually got us taken out. So even if the EFF wanted me out, they could never have been able to cut my throat if it wasn't for the UDM reneging on the coalition agreement. And that's what the public don't remember. The UDM was treacherous, traitorous, and I had had multiple meetings with the DA leadership and Bantu Olamisa to say, this man is corrupt and is not fulfilling the negotiated agreements of this coalition, and he should have been kicked out. He never was. Ultimately, we lost the government. So if you don't have the courage of your convictions to act against people who break coalition agreements, you must suffer the consequences. So I would say to Herman, sign the coalition agreement in blood so that people know that if you break the coalition agreement, you're going to be kicked out of the coalition, regardless of what the consequences are. And, uh, Miss, um, the other issue you wrote to you about is the stance on immigration. Can you help our viewers understand precisely what is the stance? I believe it's primarily focused against illegal immigration. Yeah, that's it. It's as simple as that. He says that migration is important. International immigration and in a global village, he agreed with that. And scarce skills are needed in this country, especially in the fields of energy, for example. And, you know, even if I can give you a really bad example of a scarce skill, we have got doctors in this country that are trained at some of the best medical institutions in the world that had incredible reputations that are unemployed in this country, yet we import Cuban doctors and we send other students to go and study medicine in Cuba. To me, that's not the importation of a scarce skill. A scarce skill is to bring people into this country that have knowledge on sustainable green energy uh, to deal with the energy crisis that we faced with, uh, with fossil fuels and with Eskom. Now, Herman agrees on that, and it's written in the Constitution, it's very clear, that they are opposed to illegal, undocumented immigration. So, can one say it's sort of, um, he wants to clamp down on uh, um, physical immigration across the border in Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Namibia, but he wants to relax international immigration? Well, even Zimbabwe is international. Zimbabwe is in another sovereign country. But you can't just walk across the Limpopo River. You need to come through a border post. You need to present a passport. You need to be documented. You need to have a, 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 you know, a, a permit 
um, you, you, you need to have some kind of formal right to enter with a prescribed period. And, you know, if, you look, if you're there longer than that, you become naturalized as a citizen or, you, you, or whatever. I mean, those are just natural conventions. But you can't just walk backwards and forwards across the border as you please without a passport, without any documentation. Because what has happened is that many of those people get assimilated into the communities. They are African. They, they can speak, for example, um, Nguni languages. So it's not long before you can you know, get, a, get a, a, along with a local language. And you go to home affairs and you say to them, look, I was born here in this place, but my folks lost my birth certificate and I haven't got one. And here's somebody who vouches for me that, yes, I was born there and they're my uncle and I get an Adi book. And then you become a South African. You know, that's just untenable. And the other thing is, I remember when Herman was still the mayor, one of his greatest challenges in the inner city of Joburg was that those buildings had been uh, hijacked and they were hijacked by foreign nationals. They just took over the buildings, didn't pay any rent. The landlords were threatened if they came near there, that they, their lives would be at stake. And you had hijacked buildings. I mean, a phenomenon of hijacked buildings. And Herman, when he was a DA mayor, was driving that issue and saying, we can't have foreign nationals that are undocumented hijacking buildings in Johannesburg. He was doing that as a DA mayor, not as an action SA mayor. Just out of interest, sake, how do you handle such a situation at a local level and not a national level? How do you, as a mayor of Johannesburg, how can you handle such, such a situation? Well, as a mayor, you've got very pragmatic responsibilities. You've got to deal with you know, hijacked buildings and you can appeal to the national government but we have a situation in this country that if you're not part of the ANC government and you might run a province or you might run a city, they don't give a damn about your problems. So you've got to deal them with them yourself. That's the reality of being a mayor. And that's the one thing about South African politics. People don't understand how powerful an executive mayor position is. You almost have more power than the president because it's an executive position. You take executive decisions. In a coalition, it's a bit more difficult because you've got to convince your coalition partners but an executive mayor has got an extraordinary power, much more than a premier of a province. So if people are hijacking your buildings, you must deal with it. You can't write letters forever to uh, the ANC government. It's like posting letters into the ether. They, they don't even respond to them. So if you're the mayor and you're responsible for safety in the inner city or responsible for getting rates paid for those buildings or services paid for those buildings, you must do something about hijacked buildings. Okay, so Atul, um, you are now the chairman of Action SA in the Eastern Cape. How do you plan to do some serious damage against the ANC in the Eastern Cape? Because it seems like they are quite resilient in the, in the Eastern Cape. If you take just Buffalo City, I believe they got 60%. Even um, as they fell below 35% in Gauteng, they still got 60% in Buffalo City. So how, do you, how can you do some serious damage to the ANC in the Eastern Cape? Yeah, well, look, I have some experience uh, of bringing the ANC uh, and knocking them off their perch because, as I said, I came from when the PFP, we were uh, you know, nearly wiped out in 1994, we became the DP, uh, and, you know, we got 1.3%. Uh, we were literally almost an extinct political party, and if there was a threshold of 5%, that would have been the end of us because we only got 1.3%. So when I started working in the Eastern Cape for the DP then, uh, we literally started from scratch. We went door to door. I remember moving to East London. I rented a place and I lived in East London for like six months before the election. So 
Uh, I then ultimately came and stood in Nelson Mandela Bay and we brought the ANC below 50%. People, the ANC said, it'll never happen. Uh, it won't happen before Jesus Christ returns, quote unquote, was what they said. And they went from 51% to 40, and we went from 40 to 47%. I mean, 41 to 47%. There was a 17 percentage point swing. Unheard of. Never happened before. Not in any other municipality where the ANC was in government. So I've seen that it can be done. But yes, the ANC is entrenched, 60% in Buffalo City. But I must say the opposition is weak in Buffalo City. We built up a considerable opposition in Nelson Mandela Bay and we became the government. People said it would never happen. It can happen. It will happen again. Uh, one of the political analysts that have been on Worldview mentioned that Action SA might struggle in a place like the Eastern Cape because there are not that many foreigners in the Eastern Cape as opposed to Gauteng, Johannesburg, Pretoria, and that message of illegal immigration might not stick as much as it can in Gauteng. Well, what do you, what do you say to that? I don't know who that commentator is, but I don't think that commentator is worth their salt because that is not the Action SA's campaign message, illegal immigration. We're campaigning on ethical leadership, doing something about corruption, being a pragmatic government, getting the job done, holding people to account, proper education, proper health care. Those are the issues. So any commentator who says they're not enough, you know, for, they're dreaming. There are foreign nationals in this province in their tens of thousands. Go to any rural village, see who's running the spaza shops. They're foreign nationals. I'm not saying that they're undocumented. I'm saying they're foreign nationals. I, I, I've been working in Fort Beaufort, for example, for the last two years. Every single shop in the main street in town is either run by a Pakistani or a Nigerian or someone. They're foreign nationals. I'm not saying they're undocumented and I'm not a xenophobe. I'm actually fundamentally opposed to xenophobia. And I've made my position very clear. I've done it on social media. I've said xenophobia is the worst possible thing. It's the ugly consequence of nationalism, where you're either with us or you're against us. You're either a Hutu or a Tutsi, you're either a Jew or you're a German. Those are the worst things about xenophobia and nationalism. So I'm completely opposed to any shred or form of nationalism. And xenophobia is one of the most, uh, my greatest anathemas. You can't say to somebody, because you happen to come from another country, you're a xenophobe. But you must remember, that I'm a sixth generation South African. My forebears came out in 1820. So if somebody's xenophobic, uh, it's going to affect me. You know, when, when Julius Malema makes statements like, I'm not calling for the murder of white people yet. It's a xenophobic statement. It's nothing else. So I'm opposed to xenophobia. And so that, uh, sorry, that commentator, I don't know who it is. He's not worth his salt. Well, thank you, Afil. Um, I see our time is running out. This has been such a fascinating interview. It, it's great to hear the other side. We've had so many DA members on the show, so it's great to hear the other side. I, I want to give you one last opportunity to add, plug, or say anything that you want to. Yeah, look, I think that, um, thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I, I do think that South Africa is teetering on the abyss and that those 53% of registered voters uh, don't really fully understand the power that they have. Uh, don't give up on democracy. Don't give up on the fact that having a right to vote is one of the most powerful things that you have because you can vote for change. I've seen it happen. I, I've been a recipient of that. You know, I spent, of the 30 odd years in politics, 
I was only in government for two years. So it's a long haul. It's a long time to be in opposition, dreaming of the, the day when you come into power and you can implement your policies. But it's worth it. It's worth sticking at it. And if you want change, you've actually got to vote for change. And the one beauty about part of the name of this party that I belong to is Action SA. It takes actions to bring about change. Not complaining, not sitting at home, not voting. It takes action. And when Herman Mashaba says, join me in taking action, I said, it comes out. Well, great. And I wish your party all the best. But thank you, Atul, to our viewers. You most certainly enjoy this content. So please consider liking this video, subscribing, and sharing it as widely as possible. My name is if Donald. You send it, if you send it to me, Donald, I'll do that. Great. Thank you, Atul. And my name is Donald, and you've been watching Worldview.